Hey, how are you doing? This episode of Being Freelance is brought to you by Withjack. They help keep you in business by supporting you financially or legally if you have problems with a client. Get the freelance insurance you deserve. With monthly plans and zero cancellation fees, a Withjack policy gives you complete control over your protection. Visit withjack.co.uk and be a confident freelancer. Right now, let's find out what it's like being freelance for business coach Jonathan Stark. It doesn't really matter if, you know, you're making a million dollars a year and losing two million, right? Like, I don't care how much I'm making. If none of it's profit, I'm going to be miserable. Ideally, I'd work an hour a year for a million bucks. Like, that's highly profitable. The way that you grow in a value-based system is that you find bigger problems that you can solve or bigger transformations or bigger expensive problems or bigger opportunities that you can contribute to and then your contribution is automatically going to be valued more highly. You have to kind of become famous. If you want to be a solo person who's recognized for your expertise, you basically need to become famous at least in the world that is going to care about your kind of expertise. Not the whole wide world like Kim Kardashian. You just keep putting yourself out there. You keep writing. You keep at it. You're passionate about the subject. You know, you're not afraid to speak and write. Good luck's going to probably find you. Yeah, so there is Jonathan, who is a business coach, but started out uh, as, uh, well, in software. Anyway, his story coming up, I'll let him tell you in a moment. I'm so glad we got Jonathan on. I really enjoy his Ditching Hourly podcast. Um, If you enjoy him chatting to us today and you've not heard that before I, I recommend but listen to this one first there's something very meditative about Jonathan's voice he's just, like I'm so glad he does a podcast because he he <laughs> just it's very soothing do you know what like it tells a great story but it's just very soothing anyway listen Jonathan's story coming up in a moment just to remind you of a few things beingfreelance.com is the website where you can find articles on the blog you can find the videos you can find the community and of course over 200 episodes of this here podcast so that's beingfreelance.com please do come join us in the community if you haven't already right now though let's crack on with this week's guest and that is business coach set in providence just south of boston jonathan stark hey jonathan hey thanks for having me as ever, how about we get started hearing how you got started being freelance? Basically, how you got started working and where you are today. Hmm, okay, I'll try to keep it short. I'm kind of old. I went to music school and wasn't making ends meet with that. So I started doing, I guess you'd call it freelance through like an agency. I started doing graphic design for a Fortune 50 company near where I live. And did that for a while. They eventually hired me as a full-time employee. So I really only did that for about a year, I think. So I was freelance through an agency like Robert Half type of place. And that was fine. It was better money than playing guitar on the street. That's for sure. Um, And then through that job, I really got back into uh, computers. I had done computers as a a little kid in the 80s. My dad had a, you know, uh, one of the original IBM PCs didn't have a hard drive or anything. And I learned basic and I, I had always loved that, but I got away from it when I was doing music. And so then I got bit by the bug again. This would have been in the the late, uh, like around nine, 98, 99. So after a couple of years at that fortune 50, I became to be dissatisfied for various reasons, money, so on and so forth. So I started looking around and I got a job with, a a fairly well-known firm in a niche space doing FileMaker development in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, worked my way up there and eventually 
became the vice president, you know, reporting to the owner and was managing a bunch of other FileMaker developers. So I was doing things like, you know, telling them to get their hours in and making hourly estimates for project work and fighting with clients about how many hours we build last week and sending out invoices with hours, hours, hours. So um, I eventually had sort of an epiphany that hourly billing was causing lots of problems for us. And it actually created a perverse incentive. And once I uh, recognized that, I decided to leave and start my own shop doing software consulting on a different basis. So instead of billing by the hour or trading time for money, uh, I gave fixed prices. Instead of billing for my time, I gave fixed prices for my work based on value instead of on how many hours I thought it was going to take me to do the work. So hopefully that wasn't too long of a story. Um, <laughs> so but, when was that? When was that that you broke out as a software consultant on your own? I went solo on in 2006. And how did you go about finding your first clients once you were that solo consultant? Yeah, I think the very first ones were came with me from the firm that I had been at, which was a, a an arrangement that we all made. It was all I didn't like poach them or anything. We did like a rev share kind of thing. Uh, so I think those were my first first couple of clients had met me through that um, job when I worked at the firm. How did you broach that though? Like you, you say, a, a, like a revenue share. So right. was it like, look, these guys are going to come to me anyway. I'd like us to be on good grounds, or like, like how? Because that sounds like a tricky conversation. Yeah, I was really close with the owner. We're still close. It's like twenty years, fifteen years later. Right. So you know, it, it wasn't a big deal. And you know, the clients, you know, like the clients only knew me. So it would have been weird to try and hand them off and all that stuff. So I was like, hey, how about if you know I do a solo? Um, I'll give you half the money and take the client with me. And he was like, sure. Wow. Well, here's the good bosses. <laughs> yes, he's an amazing boss. <laughs> Suddenly, you're you're your own boss, but you've got a different take on how to bill how did that go it went amazing the first year i basically doubled my income and and that's not really apples to apples because i had a salary and then i was like taking in revenue and i would pay myself you know but it was it was a lot more money than i was making as an employee right about double and the but the other thing the most important thing was the quality of life was dramatically different so like when i was billing I was constantly thinking about hours. I was constantly trying to, um, you know, logging things and justifying things and trying to keep track of things and administrative stuff and like arguing about like, why did this take so long this time? And last time it took half as long and it was just super tedious. And the thing that really, really bugged me about it was at the beginning of a large project, you know, you'd meet with a client and you'd ask them as much stuff as you could about how much scope you thought was going to be involved with building the thing because the projects would be like six months, usually longer. And it was basically impossible. So you're kind of taking an educated guess at how many hours it's going to be. And then you give them an estimate for say $50,000, let's just say. And then when you get into it, you realize it's way more complicated than that. And it's going to take longer. And they start to get pretty antsy when they've given you $50,000 and they can see that they're not done or even close to it. And something about i mean that really bothered me because you know i'll i'll continue to keep making money until they unless they get so frustrated that they kick me out and say you know this is this is ridiculous it seems like we're never going to be done and we've spent $75,000 now and we've got nothing to show for it um that 
happened too many times. It just seemed like there was no good way to do a big software project hourly and have high customer satisfaction. It was extremely rare to hit the estimates. And maybe we were just terrible estimates. Talk to enough people to know <laughs> that it's, it's, it's really hard to estimate a big software project uh, based on hours. So what changed after I stopped billing and started pricing, it, it just changed the whole relationship with the client because all of a sudden they were calm. All of a sudden they weren't going to lose any money. You know, maybe the project would take longer than they expected, but clients usually, unless there's some real reason for a deadline, they don't really care that much if you take longer than you expect, as long as they're not paying you more. Like a lot of freelancers will think that clients are super concerned about deadlines and deadlines and they really want us to hit this deadline. It's like, no, they want you to hit the budget usually. It's usually not the deadline. It's usually more about the budget, but to them, it's one and the same because they're used to paying billing by the hour. So they think, oh, well, we've only got enough money to do this for three months. If you're not done in three months, then it's going to be a problem. But, you know, occasionally there's like, oh, this needs to be done before the Olympics or something. And there's like an actual hard <laughs> deadline. But usually that's not the case. Usually if a client is creating what you perceive to be basically a made up deadline, it's because they're trying to keep you on budget and and. When you take that away, when you take away that fear that they have, which is a, a rational fear of just having this endless expense going out the window, when you take that away, they become super calm. And it's on me or you, if you're doing it, to get the job done as quickly as possible at a real high level of quality so that you can stop. You know, So the faster you finish, the better it is for you which aligns the financial incentives between you and the client because the faster you finish it for them, the better it is for them. They don't want it to take a long time. Most of them wish they could just snap their fingers and have it done in one day. So why should you only get paid for eight hours if you have this magic wand? Mm. So how did you go about about pricing though? So for example, you say you were estimating 50,000 pounds, ends up taking 75. Mm -hmm. um, and that was based on hours. How would you then, as you created your own consultancy, how are you doing it differently where you knew to charge 75000 or or 100 grand or whatever mm -hmm. that wasn't based on hours? Because surely somewhere along the line you must have been thinking, how much time is this going to take me? Or are you not at all? Uh, I don't anymore. Uh, at the time, it took me, it took me probably uh, maybe six months to a year to start to get really comfortable with it. And even then bad habits would creep in in some sales interviews that I would do. But I feel like I've got it pretty nailed at this point. So I guess I'll just give you the it's sort of give you the final solution, which is that you, you, here, here's the way it used to work for me when I was going to bill by the hour, I'd go into a sales interview with somebody, they said, Hey, let's talk about this project that we've got. So I'd go into this meeting, usually on the phone, but it could have been in person. And the whole time in that meeting, my purpose for being there is because in the next day or two, I'm going to have to put together an estimate of how much time it's going to take me to do this. So in the meeting, I spend the entire time, or we used to spend the entire time asking the wrong kinds of questions, just the wrong category of questions. I would spend the entire time asking scope questions. How many tables need to be in the database? How many business objects are of concern to you? Can an invoice item ever be spread across more than one invoice? How much business logic do you have around employee permissions? You know, all of these scope, 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 scope things. And they're happy to give, give those answers if they have them. Uh, and then I would go and write a proposal based on hours that would almost without fail 
not have things listed in the scope that ultimately became clear we had to build and that's where the scope creep would come from and that's where the budget overages would come from. So now when I'm going to do a project proposal, I do it the exact opposite way. So instead of coming up with how many hours do I think it's going to take me to work and then I come up with an estimate, which isn't even a price if we're being honest, and then try and do the work uh, fast enough to satisfy the client and not go over budget, I flip it upside down. And this is going to sound really weird. So like, you know, dear listener, let this sink in for a second before you reject it out of hand. <laughs> now in a sales interview, you know, they're going to tell me a bunch of things. Oh, you know, you're, you're a, you know, mobile web developer, what sorts of stuff. These are the things that we think you want, we want you to do. And, you know, I'll take notes and everything. And we'll do that for maybe 15 minutes when they're kind of brain dumping all of the things they think they know about the project and uh, that relate to what I do. And then I would say, okay, this is great. I've got all these notes. This is all seems reasonable. Um, but let's back up for a second because I could build this a hundred different ways. There's so many different ways to skin the cat. Can you help me understand the larger business context that this is going to exist within? And they say, okay, like good clients will, will be open to that kind of a conversation. Clients who just want to tell you what to do are going to react negatively to that, which is a great way to, you know, sort of root out bad clients. So they'll say, yeah, that, that would be great. So let's talk about that. And I'd say, okay. And then I'd go through this list of what I call the why conversation. It's a series of questions that fall into three different categories of why would you do this? Why do you want to do it now? And why would you hire someone expensive like me to do it? And, you know, I've got maybe you could uh, probably got six different styles of questions under each underneath each uh, one of those three things. And I'll, I'll have them, I basically try and talk them out of, of the project, talk them out of hiring me, talk them out of doing it so that I raise every possible objection that they would have to a proposal. So if we're sitting there and I say, you know, why, why do this? What's wrong? Like, I know you, you just told me all of these things that you want, but why do you want them? What's the motivation? What changed? Is something broken? Are your numbers down? Is there a new strategy from the board of directors for you know, for this year that we need to implement? Like, what's the reason? Because I, I kind of act like a doctor. I want to know that the solution that they've prescribed for themselves is actually going to help the business. You know, first do no harm, right? Like a, like a patient doesn't run into a doctor's office and say, doc, I need a triple bypass. And the doctor says, sure, let me go get my scalpel, jump up on the table and take off your shirt. (laughs) It's like, no, they, they, they might, it might be that you just have heartburn. You don't need a triple bypass. So they just give you some pills. So I want to make sure that the the self-diagnosis that the client has done, I want to make sure first validate that I have some confidence that they've picked the right medicine. Because a lot of times if they're not experts at what you do, they they're they might pick the wrong thing. So I just validate first that this is a good idea. And I'll take, you know, and when they tell me why it's a good idea and I'll suggest other things like, well, why not why not do something different? Why not do it differently? Why not handle this with with hiring instead of building software, why not just hire more people to type, type in your invoices and they'll give me all the reasons and I'll write them down as verbatim as possible as I'm taking notes and then move into the, why do this now? What changed? Why not study this for six months? Maybe now's not the right time. Are you sure you have the money for this right now? Are you sure that your employees have time to do this right now? And I want to get confidence that, that the project is really urgent. The more urgent, the better. Because if it's not that urgent, then it's going to be a long sales cycle and the, the value is going to be lower. It's not that important. 
they're just kicking the tires, they're just investigating. So I'm a lot less interested. I might not give them a proposal. But if they say, oh no, Amazon just came into our space. We think we've got a three-month window of opportunity before they completely decimate our industry. We need to get this live now or we're going to miss the miss the window. I'm like, okay, I like the sound of that. It's a very high-pressure situation. And then the last category is why hire someone expensive like me? Why not get your cousin Vinny to do it? Why not outsource this uh, to hire someone from TopTal or wherever, Fiverr? Why not do this internally? Why not get um, with, with interns? And they'll give me reasons for all of these things. Like if, if this is going to be a good project that I'm going to bother putting together a proposal for, they're going to say things like, we tried the outsourcing thing before, but the time zone and the language barrier was too much. It ended up screwing things up. Or we, we do have interns. We have internal employees that could do this, but they're already maxed out on another project. You know, and they'll give me all of these reasons. Again, I'm writing all of this down verbatim why they can't do any of the cheaper options. So then when I go put my proposal together, I'll say, hey, you know, thanks for having me on the call. Um, As I understand it, your current situation is this, your desired future state is that, and you believe that my contribution to that transformation from state A to state B is X, Y, and Z. And like I basically set the stage for the entire proposal or the project. And then I'll give them three options and say, well, there are three ways that we can do this. And I'll set the prices for these three things based on the transformation. So the transformation from state A to state B, whatever it is, I'll have a sense from talking to them. I'll know why they want to do it. I'll know what number they're looking at that's broken. I'll know what, or at least what symptom. It might not be a number, but it probably is a number of some kind. Because when they told me that they have to do this and they convinced me that they have to do this, they told me something broke or they told me that something had changed. Amazon came into the space and we're about to, our, and our industry is about to be annihilated. Well, that's a pretty expensive problem. So I know that there's a lot of value in solving it. So at that point, I'll just do a back of the envelope calculation like, well, a company this size, they're doing $100 million a year or they're doing a million a year, whatever it is, they're doing you know this much per year. Their payroll is probably $100,000 a month. They have money. And this is an existential threat for the business, let's just say. So, you know, this project being a success is at least worth $100,000 to them. At least. And now I'm not going to do the whole thing by myself. It's going to be collaborative or there's a bunch of different ways I could engage. So let me just pick three prices based on a $100,000 annual value of this successful outcome of this project. And I'll just set three prices, $10,000, $22,000, and $50,000. I still haven't decided at all what I'm going to do. But now that I have prices, I can say to myself, okay, what could I do for $10,000 in option one that I would be happy to do and it would feel very profitable that is going to help contribute to this desired outcome that they have? And I do the scope last. Instead of, like I described before, where I'd sit in a sales meeting and try and magically uncover every bit of scope as if it was going to be some kind of a waterfall project up front, which is virtually impossible without like a, a week's long engagement. It's, it's, it's impossible to scope first well without getting paid to do it. So I scope last. So it's estimate the value to the business of the transformation that they want, come up with three prices that are a fraction of that number, and then come up with a scope. So super long answer to your question, but it's a backwards, it's backwards what everybody does. So it's worth, I suppose, spending a little bit of time on. Do you think that works best though for 
well, you know, like say for example in software development that you were doing, do you think it could work for anyone doing that way round? I've never found an industry that it didn't work. There's some that are regulated that have to have hourly uh, rates included, and for like government, some government types of projects, sometimes higher ed. But outside of that, anything can be value priced. But that doesn't mean that every project has enough value in it to pay you. So that's two different things. So like, can anything be value priced? Yes. In fact, most things are purchased based on value. Like when you buy a coffee at Starbucks, you don't ask, well, like, how many hours did it take to make this coffee? And how many hours (laughs) did it take to ship the beans here? And how many hours did it take to design this store? You don't care about that. You're just like, is this worth three bucks or not? Yes, it's worth three bucks. So virtually every purchase decision that we make, we have this sort of gut reaction to the price and we decide if it's worth it or not. You know, my, my wife was telling me earlier today, she had this friend that just bought a $7,000 sewing machine. And our reaction to that was like, that's crazy. But to that person, for whatever reason, the sewing machine was worth $7,000. So it's a completely subjective reaction that you have to a price. So yes, every purchase decision is based on value. So yes, there's, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't be, I've never come across, let's put it this way. I've never come across an industry where you can't do this outside of regulations yeah so back in your story you get your first clients from your previous role how did you grow the business from there how did it evolve yeah so my a lot of when people say growth they picture a lot of different things so a lot of people picture growth as adding headcount or increasing top line revenue and neither one of those two things interested me in the least they both seem like vanity metrics to me like saying like, oh, I've got 10 employees. Like I just, I'm not interested in impressing people with like how many people report to me. And, and I'm just not the type that wants to build a team. Some people really enjoy building teams and being a manager and a boss and stuff. But I don't, I just don't like firing people. If, if I, I <laughs> you know, you cannot have a, a business with employees and not have to fire people. So forget it. Right. Count me out. So if you don't want to fire people, then you probably shouldn't have a team. To me, that kind of growth is it was not attractive. And top line revenue, it doesn't really matter if, you know, you're making a million dollars a year and losing two million, right? Like, I don't care how much I'm making. If none of it's profit, I'm going to be miserable. So to me, the only meaningful metric is profitability. Ideally, I'd work an hour a year for a million bucks. Like, that's highly profitable. You know, so I would I would look for ways to create leverage in my business where I could package my expertise and sell it in ways that were repeatable, low effort to no effort sales and delivery to, uh, you know, maximize the value and the profitability, I should say, maximize the profitability of my efforts. But I didn't get to, I didn't get to like info products and all that stuff until much later Um, when I was still just doing services and just doing projects, my entire approach to growth and increasing my profitability was to find bigger and bigger companies that had more and more expensive problems. The more expensive the problem the bigger the value and the higher I could set my fee and still have it be acceptable. So let's say you do logos just to give you a, like a outside of software example, if you do logos and you you're going to do a logo redesign for a mom and pop pizza place, there's going to be very little upside to them. In other words, the value to them, let's say the value to them is $10,000, which probably even isn't, but let's just say they think, you know, it's worth $10,000 for a new logo. Well, then maybe you can charge them a thousand, you know, a fraction of that value. But if it's Domino's 
or you know instead of a mom and pop pizza place you have Domino's and they hire someone to design a logo well that logo is going to get printed on 10 million boxes in the next six months and if you have the wrong logo that's going to be a very expensive thing to fix like if it turns out that it's like some kind of um, offensive symbol in another country or something like that then they're going to have to do it again well how much would it be worth for you to not have to worry about that not worry that this project's going to be a failure and needs to be redone it's going to be worth a lot more than a thousand dollars so the way that you grow in a value-based system is that you find bigger problems that you can solve or bigger bigger transformations or bigger expensive problems or bigger opportunities that you can contribute to and then your contribution is automatically going to be valued more highly even if it doesn't take you any longer how did you go about finding those companies or how did you go about getting them to find you Mm -hmm. yeah i wrote books and spoke at conferences full stop that's all i did which worked great while I was doing it. But when I got sick of doing it, then the leads dried up. So for a long time, uh, I guess it was 2000 and, oh, I guess the dates don't matter. But it was around 2009, 2010, I wrote a book called um, Building iPhone Apps with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And it was for O'Reilly, which was the biggest publisher in the space. And I, uh, between that and my past you know, I had spoken about FileMaker at a bunch of conferences before that. So I basically went on a speaking, I went on the speaking circuit and would do usually about a, a conference a month. Maybe I'd do like 10 conferences a year, you know, all over the world, uh, spoke in Tokyo and all over Canada and New York, everywhere. And uh, still, still not New Zealand. Haven't been down there yet. Looking forward to that someday. <laughs> but, um, you know, spoke all over the place. And, you know, I can I can think of more than one occasion where, plenty of occasions where, I'd get off stage, you know, I spoke at South by Southwest, there were like 3000 people in the audience and you get off stage and people just line up to be like, we need to talk. We've got exactly what you talked about on stage. That is exactly the problem that we have. We need to talk right now. In one case, a senior executive from a huge telecom, uh, you know, said like, let's go over to the bar right now. And over beers, we like hashed out um, a, a 12 month engagement for six figures that uh, maybe took me 20 hours of work. Nice. So yeah, so write, writing books and speaking, you, you have to you have to kind of become famous. So if you want to be a solo um, person who's recognized for your expertise, you basically need to become famous, at least in the world that is going to care about your kind of expertise. Not the whole wide world, like Kim Kardashian. But if you do, you know, at the time it was uh, mobile for me, so I would speak it. Um, design conferences and telecom and uh, sort of like uh, yeah, mobile events, th- those sorts of things, Nokia World and uh, Adobe Max and things like the South by Southwest. How did you get to that point though? You know, it sounds amazing in fact, standing in front of 3,000 people, having a book with the biggest publisher sort of thing. But mm. were you writing on a blog? Were you, like, were you speaking at smaller events? Was it simply that you got lucky and happened to be a transformation for a company that then got reported in a big magazine. I shouldn't yeah, use the word it. lucky, but you know what I mean. Like, How did you get to that point? Yeah, there's always some kismet that does happen. Everybody I talk to, there's always this weird, like they're, it's not, I hate to use the word hustle because it's like Gary Vee, like you got to hustle. And it's, it's true though. You got to put in the work. You have to know what you're talking about. You have to be good at your craft. Like that's table stakes. You have to know what you're doing. So you actually, first of all, step one, actually be good. <laughs> and second, you do need to start 
publishing. I just sort of lump all marketing into publishing. You have to publish. This is actually not all marketing, but you need to be putting your thoughts out into the world somehow. And uh, that usually it usually needs to be some kind of writing and some kind of speaking. It could be the speaking could be on stage or at meetups. It could be at podcasting. It could be a, a vlog on YouTube. Um, the writing could be a mailing list or a blog or a book or uh, a regular column in a publication. But you have to write and speak if you want to sell yourself as an expert. So pick whatever whatever the things are. Like pick whatever your media medium uh, is right for you. Then pick it. But to give you the the origin story for me, uh, speaking and writing both started for me in a small way when I was in the FileMaker world. So when I was at that firm that did FileMaker development with the awesome boss, you know, I basically saw exactly how he attracted clients, which he would write books and he would speak at the conference. So I was like, I'm just going to copy that, you know. So I, uh, I really did talk my way into it. My first speaking gig, I basically talked my way into it because I met the organizer in line at a conference in, in the food line at the at a conference and i was just like i have this idea it's a really it'd be a really cool talk everybody needs to hear it and i was so excited about it that i think i just sort of swayed her and gave me a spot and it went great you know that was probably that was a couple thousand people as well my very first one so <laughs> but it you know it's not luck really i was trying you know yeah. and if that one didn't work i would have kept trying and eventually gotten one so it was persistence more than luck uh, but I had something to talk about. I was excited about it. I wasn't afraid to be on stage because I used to be a musician, so it, that was fine. Uh, and then I was doing some really sporadic, pathetic blogging. Uh, you know, like, oh, geez, I haven't written anything in six months. What do you know? Um, yeah, w- when every blog post starts with an apology, you know you're not blogging enough. <laughs> so I did have a few about a very specific technology in the space. It was an emerging technology in this niche market of FileMaker developers where the the company that made FileMaker, uh, now called Claris, they released a, uh, a web API. This is like super inside baseball, but maybe the details help people. Um, re- they released a web API. So this is a desktop shrink wrap software, old style, and they released a web API for their server product. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do because I wasn't a web developer yet. I really wanted to learn it, but I didn't want to completely give up the positioning that I had established as a FileMaker developer. I was speaking at the conference and writing in the magazine and all that. So I positioned myself as the web FileMaker guy, the FileMaker web guy. And there weren't that many, there were only like two other people that had that kind of a reputation. And so I was blogging about that. And uh, sure enough, a publishing company, Sam's, I don't, I have no idea how they found me, but they found my blog and they said, Hey, do you want to write a book about this? And I said, sure. So again, it's like, I, you could call it luck, I guess, but I was doing all the things that you would do to attract a publisher, Mm -hmm. you know, speaking at the conference, writing in the trade publication, blogging a little bit about it. I came up in a Google search because it was such a rare thing that I was working on. It was like, you know, maybe, maybe a thousand people in the world even knew about it. So you know, so that led to a book deal and it was a, it was uh, nothing to write home about. I mean, I, I maybe sold a thousand books. I don't even know. I mean, I never made back my advance or anything and the advance was small, but I had a book. So that, those were sort of the scrappy kind of, you know, hustle luck phase of all that. And that was all before I went solo, most of it anyway. And then when I did finally go solo, I already knew how to write a book. I already had written a book, had been published. 
So one day I was at a meetup, a local meetup, and um, I had an idea for a book. And I ran into a senior editor from O'Reilly who was, you know, they're based uh, pretty close to where I live. And uh, we got to talking. I, I, he said, oh, well, I'll, I'll float your idea at the next editor's meeting and see what they say. And he floated it. And he, I don't even remember what that book idea was. He got back to me and he was like, nah, nobody really cared about that. Do you have any other ideas? And I said, oh, yeah, sure. I've got this idea for an iPhone book. He let them know, immediately got back to me. He's like, we need to do that. Let's do this. Everybody wants to do it. I signed the deal. It was very successful. It's been translated into like seven languages. It was, it was, it was a big, it was a pretty big deal at the time. There weren't really any other books about it. Uh, and it was in 2010 and the iPhone was really, really catching on. So it was just perfect timing. Again, you could call it luck or, you know, eventually I would have had some kind of luck though. So yeah, if you just keep putting yourself out there, you keep writing, you keep at it, you're passionate about the subject and, uh, you know, you're not afraid to speak and write, good luck's going to probably find you. Mm. What was like life, like work life, work life balance that is, like for you during that period when you were working as a sort of solo consultant? Yeah, so I didn't have kids at the time, so the flying around to conferences wasn't, wasn't that bad. Um, it was post nine eleven, so so flying was still a pain, but it wasn't it wasn't like I wasn't like missing my kids or anything. I have kids now, and like that's that's how that whole thing sort of fell off because I was like I'm not flying around anymore. It's like I didn't want to do travel anymore. Hmm. But in that phase, in that period, it was really exciting. I mean, like people were paying to fly me all over the place and speak at giant giant rooms of people, and you know you feel smart and it's good for your ego and all that stuff. Um, in terms of the work. So, you know, and then I would get these projects and then there'd be work to do. Um, but a lot of it was advisory. So I would do, um, I wasn't coding as much. It was a transition. So at first I was coding all the time. Uh, and then it slowly transitioned into more, more advisory work where I was just consulting with the business owner, you know, so like the, either the lead, you know, whatever it was, the department head or the owner of the entire business consulting about what their team should build and how they should build it. So I wasn't actually building it. I was, and I wasn't even managing it. I was just kind of overseeing it uh, and being available for, um, you know, important questions that needed to be answered quickly. So that was great. I'd kind of sit around, you know, kind of swan around town, stopping for coffee and whatever. And occasionally, you know, post YouTube videos about my subject area. Occasionally, I'd, you know, once a month, probably I'd fly to a conference. Uh, and then I would kind of wait for emails and phone calls from my clients. Uh, and then periodically, there would be, I'd have to fly to a meeting with a client. So I had, you know, for a long time, I had a client in the Cayman Islands. So I would fly down there. I think it was once a quarter. Poor me. <laughs> um, I had a client for a long time in Berlin. Uh, I only had to go there once, but it was nice. So, you know, it was like, uh, it was mostly kind of doing, it was kind of like being a, a researcher and a consultant, kind of all wrapped up in one. I, I spent a lot of time listening to tech blogs, real cutting edge stuff. I basically did what you need to do to stay cutting edge in an emerging technology. So I, I was always one of the best people to ask in maybe in the world about a particular technology because I was I had time to consume everything that was coming out about it, do my own research and testing. That's interesting, of course. So it's it's not just the doing the work, but you had plenty of time in which to stay at the top of your game, researching and thinking and marketing myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, at the beginning, I I introduced you as a business coach. So at some point, 
just started to change, presumably. Yeah. So it was a, a few dominoes fell uh, along the timeline. It wasn't like an overnight kind of thing. But, you know, we started having kids. I, I didn't like flying around as much. I started to really detest it, as a matter of fact. And I stopped being interested in the technology. So mobile technology kind of reached the top of the S-curve, if you're familiar with that. It was just like, you know, every new iPhone was a little bit better than the last one, and things weren't changing that much. It wasn't exciting anymore. And one of the one of the key moments was I got a, you know, my a third, I had two book deals after the iPhone book with O'Reilly, and then I had a, a fourth, and I signed it, and they sent me the advance, and I started to write it, and I was like, I would rather do anything than write this book. I'd rather go to the dentist than write this book. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is a sign. I can't even make myself write this. I don't want to research it. So I said, you guys, let's. I'm just going to send you your money back. Let's just cancel this or find it, find a different author, somebody else to write it. I recommended another person that could write it. So I, I was just like, well, that's a sign. And so I stopped writing and I stopped flying around speaking. So guess what? I stopped at getting leads. And I stopped having people running up to me and say, hey, you need to take our money right now. <laughs> and at that point... Let's see, kids were born, blah, blah, blah. So we're talking about 2013 or 14 ish. Mm -hmm. And I had some long term clients that were paying me on retainer. So I was still doing okay financially, but it did make me nervous that I wasn't getting new clients. And of course, you know, these long term retainer clients, eventually they're going to be done. So, you know, geez, I'm not getting any leads anymore. I used to get leads like magic. So that started to make me nervous. I started to get really bored with the technology. And all along, so now if we're talking about 2014, I think in 2009, I had also started blogging about the way I ran my business because a lot of the folks that knew me, I had a lot of friends in the FileMaker world and they all built by the hour at the time. And they were like, I imagine when I went solo and they knew why I was going solo because like, why are you leaving this awesome firm? And I was like, eh, I'm going to try this value-based pricing thing. And they're like, okay, good luck with that. <laughs> And I think they were surprised that it went so well. And so I started getting invited to meetups and stuff of other developers who were like, how, can you explain this to us? Like, how does this work? How are you, how are you like crushing it with no employees and no timesheets? And I was like, all right. So I started explaining it. I started blogging about it. I blogged about it on a weekly basis for some period of time, maybe, maybe 10 or 20 weeks in a row. And so that, that had all happened. People were always asking me about it. Like my colleagues were always asking me about it. So then by 2014 or thereabouts, I was really sick of tech and not getting any leads and didn't really want to get any leads. So I start and I was getting more and more questions about value pricing. So I started to focus on that more. Uh, and then 2016, I'm probably getting the timeline a little bit wrong, but in 2016, I collected a bunch of those essays that I had written in those blog posts. And I released a book called Hourly Billing is Nuts in the, the summer of 2016. And that was kind of like the, the milestone where in my mind, that was the beginning of my new business coaching stuff. So like business coaching for, you know, software developers and other independent professionals, basically any professionals that bill by the hour. Um, and I started e uh, an email list, a daily email list with when that book launched. So I just went hard on that since then and went through a transitional period of about probably about three years of ramping down the mobile consulting business and ramping up the business coaching wow so, and you still do a daily email now yes i'm on like number 1000 
700 in a row or something That's like amazing. that. amazing. Do you sit down and write, write a block of them? Nope. I just I have an idea during the day and blast it out, and then the next day I do it again, and I do it again. Wow. As you were doing that as well, you you started podcasting, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's another thread uh, that I forgot about. So it, I'm not, I can't even guess the year, but a long time ago, somewhere in there, I started podcasting with a good friend of mine named Kelly Shaver, and we started a, a tech podcast called Niche, N-I-T-C-H. And we did 254 episodes or something like that. Um, it was pretty steadily weekly show doing doing tech but it didn't it wasn't it was just us like hanging out and recording it and talking about like what bugs did you come across this week or like should you write an api first or should you do the interface first? it was like really really nerdy developer stuff uh and then we stopped that after a while and i did another podcast we switched that into more of a futurist future of tech podcast called terrifying robot dog we did that for <laughs> another 250 episodes or so and that was a little bit more topical so it was very tech oriented, but it was much more topical. Uh, we talk about things like self-driving cars and autonomous robots and stuff. At that point, I was extremely comfortable podcasting and probably in the teens, like 2013 or 14, maybe mm -hmm. 2015, I started a, a solo podcast about the business coaching stuff. So as I was ramping that up, uh, and that was called Ditching Hourly. So that was probably after... Hourly Billing as Nuts came out. So maybe that was 2017 or something. Uh, so you get a few hundred episodes there. And then three years ago, I started a podcast with Rochelle Malton called The Business of Authority, where we talk about the high-level strategic aspects of running an expertise-based business, where you, you're trying to have a big impact on the world. You're, you've got a big idea, and you're trying to spread the word, uh, sort of like present the, present the word in a way that it will spread on its own kind of thing. So you know, how do you fund your mission when you are kind of like a thought leader type of person? And you still do that podcast now? Mm -hmm. Right. And you still do Ditching Hourly now, of course, as well. So yes. those first attempts, you know, with the robot dog and the one before that, yeah. the, the niche one, like, did did they help your business at all? Or were you just enjoying them? Like, how did it fit in? The very first one was definitely just for fun. And I don't think it ever helped me business wise. It was very scattered. Um, the terrifying robot, terrifying robot dog. Interestingly enough, I had, that was when I had a lot of, I had a lot of solo clients, um, a fair number. I had, you know, I was like, I was like, I had plenty of work back then. And I know that a lot of them listened to it and it was sort of like, we, we have sort of a humorous rapport. So they would laugh. They'd be like, Oh, that was so funny on the show. When you talked about that, and I thought it was so weird that my clients were listening to my podcast <laughs> Uh, that seemed strange to me, but then it's, it did make sense after a while. Um, but, but it was not intentional. It was more like I just missed talking to Kelly every week. And we were like, like, yeah, we should just keep podcasting, if only to have a weekly phone call and catch up. So it was mostly just fun, but it did, it did build some trust with existing clients. I don't think it ever brought me a client, um, but that is definitely not the case. With the newer Ditching Hourly and with uh, TBO, the Business of Authority, um, that definitely is is like right on the nose of you know lead generation which do you like you do one solo although you interview people and some of them are totally solo episodes yes but yes. you also do that collaborative uh podcast as well what's mm -hmm. like what's what's your experience of both of those do you find it easier to keep going when somebody else is there or or you just 
perfectly well driven anyway. Uh, ditching hourly, if you look back, you might notice that there, it's sporadic the way that I, I release ditching hourly. Ditching hourly for me is like an outlet for thoughts that I that need, that are just better suited for audio. So it's a real grab bag. It's all it's all focused on a specific topic, of course. You know, so you stop trading time for money. Like that's the that's the focus at all times. But you know, you might get a four minute long episode, a one minute long episode. You might get an hour long episode. Um, you might get four in one week. You know, like four drop on one day, and then four weeks of nothing. So it's pretty unpredictable. But I don't really care about it in terms of subscribers. It's more like um, I want to get these thoughts out, and then when someone discovers it they'll go back and binge listen to a bunch of episodes. It's not like people are sitting around on Tuesday morning waiting for the new episode to come out. It's hard to describe. I just don't care about being consistent with it. I don't know. It's hard to describe. Yeah, but it sounds like it serves you in a way to clarify your thoughts on on the topic. Yes, exactly. It's, it's almost like I have to get something off my chest or figure something out, and I can't do it in writing for some reason. So that that's a sort of it's almost like a lab. It feels like a lab to mm. me, like like something. It's just like an ideal lab. Uh, but the business of authority that I have, you know, Rochelle Moulton is my co-host. She's a very organized person compared to me, and she likes to have two episodes recorded in advance, so we don't have to rush. She likes to have the show, you know, everything everything set up and the eyes dotted and the t's crossed. And we get along great. So it's like a, it's real natural. We get a, a subject matter, we figure out what are we going to talk about this week? And we go through it and it releases like clockwork. They're usually always right around an hour. So it's real consistent uh, in that way. But the subject matter and the purpose of that show are very different. So, so ditching hourly is me, you know, I, I guess I'm realizing right now it's me sort of like the Petri dish for ideas uh, where business of authority was, I, I originally conceived of that show as a a venue to speak to like New York Times bestselling authors. Like the whole point of that show, it was not about building an audience or selling anything. It was about being able to talk to Seth Godin for an hour. So I wanted to have something to invite people like Dan Pink and and Seth Godin and, you know, whatever, Jill Conrath and, you know, like best selling authors. I wanted to show that they would want to come on so that I could pick the brain for an hour. <laughs> it was like totally self-serving. <laughs> um, and then, and then right around the same time, Rochelle reached out. We didn't know each other. She reached out to me and she was like, we, I feel like we should meet. Your name keeps coming up in my circles. Let's just jump on a Skype call, which is so totally Rochelle. It's like super hilarious. I would never do that in a million years, but she did. And it was great. <laughs> and we totally hit it off. So that right after we got off the Skype call, I, I chattered her back and I was like, you know, I've been thinking about starting this podcast, but it would be so, you'd be a perfect co I wasn't thinking of having a co-host, but you would be perfect. It'd be so much more fun if we did it together. And she jumped at it because she had never podcasted before and was looking for a way to kind of like ease her way into the pool with some assistance. So worked out great for both of us. And, uh, you know, and we're, in fact, we're about to have our 150th episode and, uh, we're going to try and do a lot more interview shows. We've had, we've had about 10 or 12 interviews over the past three years. So we don't do tons of interviews, um, which is mostly out of laziness. So we're making a concerted effort now that we've got some big names that have come on the show and we've got a track record that, you know, we consistent, we show up every week uh, we're going to start inviting more and more people. So probably, probably have, we're going to, I mean, I would love to have every show be an interview every week, starting with like number 151. So mm. we'll see if that happens, but. 
So if we look at your business today, what, what it, basically I'm, I'm thinking where where is where is the revenue coming into the Stark Tower now? <laughs> so I've got a, a series of things. So there are, I, I mean, I'm slowly morphing into a, a more of a product business than a service business. And I, I think that's really good for, I think it's good for any freelancers listening to have kind of a diversified revenue stream. It's like, you're an expert at a thing. Like you're good at it. People give you money to do the thing. So you must be pretty good at it. And assuming that that's true, you can come up with different ways to help different people in, in, in different, at different price points. So like package up that expertise in different ways so that people who maybe don't need it as much as your regular clients, but need it a little bit can spend $29 on an ebook or, um, you know, a a three video, a self-paced course. So, you know, experiment with some of this stuff, creating product info products or productized services. Um, it's a great way to diversify your income, to stop being dependent on whale clients. But to answer your question specifically, uh, at the high end, I have a private coaching program. It's four months long, one-on-one that currently is, priced at $10,000, but you know, every year I raise the price, people seem to keep coming. So, um, so that's the high end of the, what I would call my helicopter option. That's the most expensive option. Uh, and then I've got group coaching, which is less, significantly less expensive, but it's not, it's not private. You're in a group and we meet every other week on a video call. And, uh, I take Q and a for an hour or more and just help people with whatever they're stuck with. And then there's a, a Slack community that goes with that. So it's you can think of it like a membership, paid membership community. Uh, what else? And then I've got sort of one-off coaching calls where people can just have a very specific tactical situation, or maybe they've got a, a big proposal that they're they're trying to put together and they've got, a fi- they've got a fish on a line or they're trying to write a proposal and they just need to talk to me to kind of like get a second pair of eyes on it. So those are the, those are the kind of high-touch one-on-one, not one-on-one, but those are the high-touch things that are... are I guess we call them synchronous where like I show up mm-hmm. and then I've got uh, a couple of seminars, you know, the pricing seminar and I've got a five day podcast challenge course and I've got, you know, I've written self-published four books, I'm working on a fifth. So, you know, and those, so I've got info products that are as, as little as I think the audiobook of hourly billing is nuts, like 19 bucks all the way up to $10,000 for a four month coaching program. How do you stay in control of your time when uh, I don't know in I feel like inside your brain you might always be thinking about things and wanting to <laughs> maybe do new things yeah how how do you stay on top of 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 life and work mm, okay I, there's almost like two questions there, but the I think from the outside, it looks like I do a lot more than I do because everything is so focused on a particular central theme which is stop trading time for money, that every little thing I do uh, increases the flywheel. It like, it like I spin the flywheel a little bit more and then I can take my hand off of it. It keeps going, you know, so it creates, uh, it creates this sort of flywheel effect because I've got a central theme. So all of the content that I create, all the podcast episodes and all the interviews and all of the eBooks and all of the, the email courses and all the daily emails, they all, it create they, they have a center of gravity, so it becomes a body of work very quickly. So it looks like a lot from outside because I didn't have to throw anything away because I don't do that anymore. You know what I mean? So it it accretes and like it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It never really shrinks. 
So it looks like a lot. So there's that, but then there's the sort of like a productivity question in there, which is like, still, how do I, how do I do it? And what I, I mean, I've got appointments in my calendar, but in a given week, maybe, I don't know, not that many, like maybe six or something in a week where, you know, like a thing like this, where I'm going to be interviewed on a podcast and there's like a particular time I have to do something. But most of the time I just have a, uh, I have a daily to-do list and it's a recurring daily to-do list. And right now it's got 15 things on it. And every day I do the 15 things and I check them off. And then the day after they all come back and I do the 15 things and I check them off. And the next day they all come back seven days a week. I don't really, I don't really separate personal and business calendars or email or anything. I've got one calendar, one email, one to-do list, you know, because if I've got a thing I have to do, it doesn't really matter if it's for work or for my kids or whatever, it just has to be done. So my daily to-do list has things on it, like do 100 push-ups, floss your teeth, drink three glasses of water. Uh, but it also has write your daily email. Um, you know, what are some of the other business ones that actually don't have that many business ones on it. I have to look at it. Um, but the big, the big one is the daily email on the daily list. Wow. 100 push-ups. So I got caught on that. Um, <laughs> uh, now, Jonathan, I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself to make two true and one a lie and let me figure out the lie. What do you have for me? So first one, I'll say um, I was a varsity swimmer in high school and won the state championship. Uh, next one is I earned my black belt at Taekwondo at age 50. And the third one is I met my best friend for life in nursery school. Okay. So did you say age 50 or for age 15 for the black belt? Five zero. I'm 51. Because like, both of them would be impressive, but in different ways. Right. <laughs> okay. When did you take up Taekwondo? Uh, I did karate as a kid, different style, and loved it. And then once we had kids, I said, hey, why don't we put put my first in karate classes because one of our friends had their kids in karate classes and then i was sitting there watching them i was like i'm getting bit by the bug again <laughs> but at that point when you came back to it then not that long ago did you have any colored belt not that counted so oh, no, okay now, if this is the true one I've, yeah i've not i don't know enough but i feel like it should take you how old your kid <laughs> 10 the older one's oh, 10. 10 i don't know i mean you do seem like somebody who, if you want to do something, you go and bloody well do it properly. <laughs> so equally, I mean, the black belt is meant to be so hard to get, but it feels like it should take a long time to get. Varsity swimmer, um, I mean, that seems perfectly plausible. Why not? Equally, though, so does the nursery one. Uh, it's a lovely... So you met when you were at nursery, you're still friends now. Correct. That's the claim. Okay, I, do you know what? It's a lovely story, and if it's true, hats off to you. But I just can't believe that in 10 years you're... In fact, no, in fact, because your kid wouldn't have even been going to karate when they were born, of course, and so then they would have been maybe... So that means in about five years, you suddenly went from zero to black belt, and I don't know anything about it, but I don't think that's possible, so I think that's the lie. <laughs> Incorrect. Oh, man! Yes, How cool are you? You're the years. coolest dad. <laughs> he actually just, he was going to beat me to getting his junior black belt because we both basically started at the same time, but I started a few weeks later. Uh, but then I got pulled in soon. I got I got to test early. And so I beat him by about six months. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
Oh, that is good. Okay, in that case, you you thought you'd thrown another uh, sporty one, so the varsity swimmer one is a lie. Yeah, I can't swim at all. As a matter of fact, I can't swim. <laughs> oh, good lie. Good lie. Now, if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, mm-hmm. what would that be? Oh, this is easy. Um, I don't know how I don't know how brief I can make it, but um, when you go out on your own, so like you've got the skill, you do it in house, you learn how to do it in house, maybe you get good at it, and you get sick of your boss or whatever, you're not getting paid enough, and you go out solo. Freelancers don't realize they just started a business. You're not. You're no longer. Are you a designer or a software developer or a copywriter? You are now a business owner. And business owners have to do certain things like marketing if they want the business to stay alive. There's a reason why every, basically every big company has a CMO or something like it. Marketing is a major, one of the most important functions of a business, bar none. Innovation being the other one. If you aren't, if you aren't doing marketing and innovation, you are not running a business that's going to be successful. So yes, do you still have to be a good copywriter or a photographer or software developer? Sure. But you're not going to get any business if you're not doing marketing and innovation. So that, that is the thing I would say. Awesome. Jonathan, thank you so much. Go to beingfreelance.com. As with all of our guests, there are links through so that you can find out what they're up to, find them on social, and of course, to things that we've spoken about so that you can find a podcast. Maybe even go listen back to the robot dog. So go take a look, beingfreelance.com, and find Jonathan's page on there. Uh, while you're there as well, click on the community button. Come join us if you haven't already. Community of freelancers from around the world right there waiting uh, to hang out. So do that. And speaking of collaborative podcasts, as we were earlier don't forget there's also the other podcast i do for freelancing parents uh, called doing it for the kids me and frankie from the doing it for the kids community would love to have you over there as well uh, but for now jonathan thank you so much and all the best well i normally say all the best being freelance but all the best kicking ass with your black belt i'm so impressed <laughs> thanks so much for having me steve 